John chapter 19, we have been going through the Gospel of John, and through the crucifixion, it's just where we've been, but because of Christmas and because of uh, New Year's, we did a couple of different studies, so we have left the study with Jesus on the cross over several weeks uh, that we have been reading it, and we did not rush to go through this because there's much prophetic word, there's much shared with us here and there's much depth and overwhelming uh, reality to this that we don't want to lose. So I'm not apologizing for going slow. I'm encouraging you on why we go slow. Um, let's pray now as we begin. Father, we are ever thankful for the work of Jesus on the cross. We'll never be able to thank you enough for what you've done. We've never been able to understand it on earth, the depth of what you've done. But there are many things in life that fascinate us that we don't fully comprehend, but we appreciate them greatly. And there's nothing that's true about more than for those of us who appreciate you and what you've done through the cross of Jesus. We not only don't want to forget, we want to remember we want to understand better and be changed and moved to be the people you want us to be, to be able to give you praise freely and thankfully with understanding. And Lord, when we reach that point that it's just beyond our understanding, may we just be in awe of you as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know... <laughs> Pay no attention to the waterfall here. I'll take a sip. and I'm going to give you some introduction about this whole issue. The last verse we read two weeks ago when it said, They divided my garments among them in verse 24, and for my clothing they cast lots, because that's exactly what the soldiers did as Jesus was hanging on the cross it says, therefore, the soldiers did these things because that was a fulfillment of a specific prophecy. Prophecy was being fulfilled before the very eyes of the people standing at the foot of the cross. Both those who were there in wonder or maybe consternation, those who were there with anger and joy to see Jesus suffer, and even the soldiers who mocked him and those that were somewhat disinterested and just wished they were back in Rome, everyone there was watching prophecy be fulfilled. But how many of them were aware of it? In fact, many of them were actually fulfilling prophecy like these soldiers in their very action without knowing that. And even the disciples themselves, all the disciples not one of them really understood what was happening. Now, we know that John, we're going to see John there, that he's right there. He does make his way to the cross, and you'll see that in a moment. But the disciples don't even understand until the resurrection and until Jesus breathes on them and enlightens them and inspires them with his Holy Spirit. And as they pour over the Word of God, now looking back at this event later, they say, oh my goodness, it's the fulfillment of what God had said. It's not a small thing. It's not a here and there. It's not Nostradamus said there'd be this great fire in the sky and, you know, and these kind of vague prophecies. These are too specific, incredibly so, and there's far too many again and again and again. Peter tells us, Apostle Peter in his book says, 
uh, when he went up on the holy mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, with James and Peter and John went up, Jesus is transfigured, and they see Moses and Elijah appear before them, and they're discussing what Jesus will accomplish in going to Jerusalem and suffering his death and resurrection. That they're seeing and hearing this. He says, we saw in the holy mountain, and we were a part of this prophetic moment and miraculous moment. And, and it's, he says, God's prophecy, all these prophecies that were made about Jesus coming and doing this, it was made more sure to us as we were on that mountain. But remember, remember, they experienced this mountaintop with Jesus, and then when they went through the whole issue of the night of the cross and Passover, they all ran, and they freaked out, and they were confused, and they were disraught, and they didn't believe. The Bible doesn't really tell the story of how great we are and how cool we are and how we never doubt or fear or have anything like that. To the very contrary. To the very contrary. And he says, so we were up there and, and the word of prophecy was made more sure by our experience. But then he goes on to say, but, and you should really pay attention to those prophecies even more than experience as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here's my point. There's two things happening. There's personal experience and there's clear prophecy. When I came to know Jesus Christ, I didn't know any of the prophecies. And I was Jewish and had been raised in Sunday school. I, I probably believed there was such a thing as the Messiah and kind of generally... And I was taught kind, of, taught kind of generally about that there's a Messiah coming and that some Jews believe it and some don't, which is still true today. But the night I came to Jesus, it was, it was, he was being revealed to me and, it, and there were all, many experiences. And then as, but then as I went, my experience matched up with the Word of God. You know, I was convicted of my sin. Does the Bible talk about that? I was convicted of Jesus being the Messiah of the Jews. Does the Bible make that clear? I was convicted that the world would not understand or believe, but that if your eyes were opened by the Spirit of God, you would believe and understand. And as time went on, these things became my love for prophecy. I don't mean that like I'm a constant prophecy buff that can't do anything else but Bible prophecy. But my love for the—it's not just end time stuff. It's the fulfillment that's in Jesus of the promises of God that have been made consistently through history. We should pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the light turns on in your heart. That's what he says. Basically, he says, until the light turns on, and until a light turns on and the morning star rises in your heart. Has that happened to you? Has the morning star risen in your heart and revealed Jesus to you? Because he'll couple that with the word of God but we don't deny that you need to have an experience that matters. We can't deny that. Because, you know, but, and, 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 you know, people who don't believe, I understand why they would, many who don't understand our faith, that it's not based solely on experience, but certain truth. Now, that sounds arrogant to people, because everybody claims to have a corner on the truth. But, but, but the truth that I proclaim that is real to me is the truth that was there whether Rick Cohen is ever born or not. 
It exists and has been proven through whether I ever got into it, whether I really like it or not. It's there. And now I know it's there because the light has shined on my heart, and that same light shines on the Scriptures and lets me see the clarity of all these promises that are consistently, consistently, not just kind of sort of out of the blue, maybe this will happen or that or general or 40% or 60%, but 100% up to this point, miraculously true and so. So whether it sounds arrogant or not, I can't fix that. I believe what I believe. It's interesting because there's abundant prophecy to be seen. In the 70s, in the heyday of the Jesus movement when I was saved, can we all just talk about me all day? (laughs) In the time when I was saved, you know, we were reading about the last days in the book of Revelation a lot. And in the book of Revelation, it was saying, you know, if you don't take the mark of the beast, uh, you know, the sign of his seal of his leadership in the world, there's going to be this antichrist. And those who, who reject that will not be able to buy or sell, and they'll be beheaded. And people would say, laugh and say, you, you archaic Christians, you believe this archaic book. Nobody beheads anymore. <laughs> and that's just, I'm just taking an aside to a small but not so small issue. I mean, that would be very difficult to see earlier on because there's very few places where you would know about beheadings, and yet now, do you know about beheadings a lot? Coincidence? Well, there's so many. So anyway, we're sophisticated. Uh, We don't follow that archaic mumbo-jumbo. Well, it's not far-fetched today. And there's more. There's so much more. But verses 25 through 30 as we begin today. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother... And his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Did you get a feeling that Mary was a popular name? When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, who is John, by the way, always naming himself as the disciple Jesus loved in this book, Behold your mother, and from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and brought it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. You know, When Jesus first spoke about having faith in him and following him, he did honestly say, households will be divided. But he also shows us through the New Testament and through his Holy Spirit how that people can be united spiritually in families, even in blood and relative families and in the family of God. What's missing here? What's missing here is we see Mary standing at the foot of Jesus' cross. Who's missing? Well, Joseph has passed on, so correct. He's already, we assume that he died. Who else is missing? The siblings. We don't, I'm not saying they're not there. They're not spoken of. We know from the scriptures that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him until he rose from the dead, and then they really caught fire. But he had his, his own brothers didn't believe in him. If you're making up a story about somebody who's supernatural and all they do is supernatural stuff, you'd probably make it where their brothers and sisters believed in their supernatural acts. But if you're telling a real story 
and you had brothers and sisters that did not believe in him because of, you know, their whatever reason and temptation, uh, you would just tell it like it is. And not only did they not believe in him, but as far as we can tell, they're not there. They're not standing next to Mary. They're not comforting her and assuring her. They're not saying, Mom, we got you covered here. We don't understand about Jesus, but we've got you. Do you see them there? No, you see Jesus say, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Jesus makes a a new family relationship. Uh, John and Mary are now connected in a family way, if you will, to the rest of Mary's life. Now, her sons may be alienated, but but, uh, um, she's with John, and those sons are going to come around. They're going to come to faith. But keep praying, keep trusting, and be comforted because, you know, we should extend to our families as much as we can. We should not be creating division with our families on purpose or by some kind of... Sometimes people use the gospel as a reason to separate from their families without good reason. You know what I mean? They, you, can use the, you can use the Bible for anything you want it to be. And you can use it as an excuse to not love your family wrongly. You should extend to the greatest degree you can. But do take comfort that if your strongest relationships that you have are in the family of God, you're in good company. Her name is Mary. And her strongest relationships, as she stood at that cross, is John and the disciples. Now, the bros come around. The family gets reunited. Good things happen. But it fulfills Scripture, additionally, of course. I thirst, Psalm 69. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, you might get confused because there's two times they offered Jesus drink. In the beginning of the crucifixion, in Mark 15, he rejects wine mixed with myrrh because wine mixed with myrrh was a painkiller. And he knew what it was when he tasted it. Uh Uh-uh. No. Why? Because he would take the full brunt of the weight of our sin upon him. But here... This watered-down wine, it was for thirst, and they, the Romans, would, hey, let's keep him alive. He's supposed to suffer. Let's make sure he doesn't die yet. And so they're giving him that. It wasn't all we're compassionate towards him. They were, you know, they were mocking him. But they gave him something to drink, and he took one last drink because, and they use a hyssop branch, which comes in our minds from where, prophetically? Where do we see a hyssop branch? Yeah, the Passover, using a hyssop branch to spread the blood on the doorposts of the house. But, you know, he's as the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus, though, needed his voice one last moment. He needed his lips to be heard as he would say, I thirst, I thirst. Te telestai, then he says, it is finished. I'm sorry, he needed something. He said, I thirst. (laughs) I said that wrong. Did you catch that? Well, don't judge me. He says, I'm thirsty. He needs one last. And then he shouts out. I believe that it was so he could shout out. And it also, of course, fulfilled prophecy. But those natural things and supernatural things always go together. Always. And so he says, it is finished. And and the Greek, it doesn't mean he spoke in Greek because he spoke in Aramaic. But the anointing on the Greek writing is te telestai which was a winner's cry. 
like cross the finish line, finish and win the race, complete it. What did Jesus say earlier to his disciples explaining in John 10? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again. This isn't something that's happening to me. Life is not happening to Jesus. Jesus is causing these things to happen. I and my Father are one. All the, thing, all the worlds were created through Jesus And he then, the most incredible spiritual event ever, that ever would or could, takes place. You know, the word that we use for bad, bad, bad pain is excruciating. Oh, I'm in excruciating pain. Now, I'm not saying you can't use that word. You feel free. But the next time you use that word, you hear somebody say, I'm in excruciating pain. It may be true. But excruciating pain, it's what causes great agony, torment, and it's the Latin from the cross, cruce, excruciating, cross, is the middle, is the actual root word to that. And remember this, the forgiver always pays the debt. The forgiver always pays the debt. You know, as soon as the words, I forgive you, roll off your lips to somebody, whatever the owing Whatever the debt that was owed, whether it's money or emotion or right behavior or whatever, is taken by the person. You know, I loan you 50 bucks. Uh, You say, I'll gladly pay you on Tuesday. Uh, Three or four Tuesdays go by, and you keep avoiding me or saying, I'm sorry, I'll have it next week, Rick. And I say to you, I forgive you. It wasn't just words off my lips. The 50 bucks out of my pocket is gone now. Do you notice my hand motions, how cool they are? That's a bird flying backwards. I have to do it now. So the thing is, is that remember, the forgiver always pays the debt. And I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, do what I do as a pastor, unashamedly repeat myself, uh, beat it into the thought processes to the degree that I can in a, hopefully a gentle and right way, is that Jesus did not take a bullet for you in battle instead of you getting shot. Jesus did not run into a burning building and rescue you and thus die in the process himself, saving you from a burning building. Jesus did not run in front of a fast-moving vehicle, push you out of the way, get hit himself, and die in your place. That is not what Jesus did. You could say it's all those things, but it's not enough. Jesus took my penalty, the payment of my sin. He didn't just save my life and pay with his life. He saved me from the penalty of my sin, that the wages of sin is death. On the cross, he bore, he was crucified as a criminal in the, in the most horrific way that criminals have ever been cru- uh, punished. It's, it's considered that the cross is as a horrific of a way to die. And it wasn't just taking my place in a problem. It was taking my place in punishment. And if you're not a Christian, you, have, you, you are free to make your own decision about what you see or don't see in this. But if you're a Christian, you either understand this or you don't. But this is Christianity. Don't ever let anyone diminish the gospel to you. This is the gospel. 
For better or worse, this is the gospel. I deserved that death. I deserved eternal separation from God, and Jesus paid my price. People can reject it, and they can reject it from you. But make sure if they're going to reject from you, it's not just your cool ideas about how what a nice guy Jesus was. He's your best friend. He's all of that. He is my best friend. But he also paid the forgiver pays the debt. And I never, ever, ever get tired of reminding us about that. So, and if I get old and feeble and can't do it, then just get somebody else and make sure they'll be just as ruthless (laughs) to speak those things of the gospel. The gospel. Nothing less. Nothing more. Nothing else. And so in verses 31 through 37... Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. So, These blind leaders cannot see their own hypocrisy. They're trying to fulfill a mandate of Scripture and of their tradition. And there is Scripture on this, on not letting a dead body, if you're hung hung up in some way, hung on a tree or hung up over a wall because you had a, a very heinous crime you committed, because stoning was the way of capital punishment in their day and in their Scripture, if that was to happen... You were not to let that body hang on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. What did Jesus become for us? A curse. He became the curse that we incurred. And he's hanging on a tree. Their reason for wanting him down has nothing to do with that. They don't want to defile this, sec- this Passover because when Passover falls adjacent to, to um, Sabbath, and they don't want to defile this Sabbath Passover because this is the additional uh, Passover day. It's why you see this, Jesus is having his Passover, and then it's still Passover, because there's two days in a row. And we don't necessarily understand it perfectly, and I've heard every possible explanation of how it all works, and it's still a little confusing. But they knew that this Friday, Sabbath is coming at, at sunset. They don't want any bodies hanging on a tree. And what the Romans would do is when they wanted to be merciful to you when you've been on the cross. Now they're going to show you mercy. Or they're in a hurry. they got some place to be. They want you to die already so they can take you down. They had an iron mallet. Bam, across the legs. You break your legs. You know that suffocation is the result because you're holding yourself up with your legs to get your breathing because as your body lowers, your lungs are filling with fluid and et cetera, and amongst all the other terrible things that are happening to you. And so they do crack all the, both of those criminals' legs, but they don't crack Jesus because he's dead. But just randomly, just randomly, because, oh, I'm, I'm, he's dead, but let's just double-check. The soldier puts a spear in his side, and out comes blood and water. 
fulfilling prophecy. Both the hanging on a tree and don't let them hang overnight, the curse that Jesus was. But Jesus is the Passover lamb, and the Passover lamb it was told to the Jews in Exodus 12. You're to take a, a, a pure lamb, and you're not to have a bone in its body broken. Whoever eats uh, a part of meat out of a, a body of an animal and doesn't uh, cut the bones and hand, you know, but no. You hang it on a spit, you cook it whole, whatever you don't eat, you burn. Burning the entire animal was a, would, would, pour, would uh, point them to the consecration and dedication uh, that this was. There was no leftovers. It was all dedicated to God. You ate and partook of your salvation, and, and, the, and it was God's. And so, too, the burnt offerings in Israel were, uh, when they burnt a whole animal, that was a picture of total consecration and dedication. And so this guy pierces his side, and out comes blood and water, the fluids of birth, because you must be born again. There's a lot of reasoning to the blood and water, but uh, many doctors, medical field people, tell us that if your heart bursts, that this would be a result here. And his lungs are, of course, filled with fluid. And so there's this picture painted of Jesus dying of a broken heart, perhaps. What is for sure is in Psalm 22 is incredible. Let me, let me just give you something on Psalm 22. You might want to read it later. Not right now. But you might want to read it later because David is writing. And David, to be sure, suffered at the hands of other men, right? David suffered persecution and trouble and pain and suffering. But when you read Psalm 22, you know that what also that we're told about the Old Testament prophets is they didn't know when they were prophesying what they were clearly speaking of. They, were, they had a part of the picture, and they would express the thing God gave them, not knowing the whole story. Clearly, this is the picture of David. You know, um, when a musician, a Christian musician, wants to write a song, you know, you can't go to David on this one, on Psalm 22, and say he was sitting there going, let me see, I want a really cool psalm to write today. My God, my God, you're so beautiful. Nah, my God, my God, uh, I, I, I need you to help me out today. Nah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Many bulls of Bashan have surrounded me, and they wag their, tail, their tongues at me and mock me. They spit on me. I can feel every bone. All my bones are out of joint, and my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. They pierced my hands and my feet. And there's more. Do you think David was experiencing everything he was saying? He was experiencing the deep emotion and pain. I think he couldn't write that psalm just because I'm going to come up with a new tune for the top ten Christian billboard. You know, he had to go through something in life to write a song, a psalm, that had this deep meaning. And not only that, he had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit beyond his own experience, didn't he? It was both. He had to experience something deeply. If you're a musician and you want to write music... Just just remember, you just don't bebop your way through music if it's for Jesus. Your life's pain and suffering and difficulties may produce the greatest, you know, what if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know he's there? What if, what comes through pain? What What if blessings come through pain? That song. 
Laura, whatever, whoever wrote that song, I don't think they just went, I'm going to make a cool song. I think they suffered in their life and had to go through pain and came out the other side. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And so we read the Psalms for comfort, and we should, but we also read the Psalms for doctrine and understanding, and and they pierced my hands and my feet. And then in Zechariah 12.10, it says, And I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they've pierced, and they will mourn for him. It says me and then him, because it's the Father and the Son. And they, will, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Here we just have that small portion where it says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. But in Zechariah, and I could go through it with you, verse 10 that is being quoted there, now I know you're scholars, so you'll follow this. Verse 10 doesn't come before verse 1 and 2, or verse 9. And in verse 1 and 2, it says, The day is coming, will burden the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. He's talking about the last days, which began here. It's that dual prophecy. Some of it's being fulfilled. What's being fulfilled right now? Jesus is being pierced. Are they looking upon him? Well, you could say to a degree they're looking upon him, but they're not mourning for him, not nationally, though people are mourning for him. And Jerusalem, though it's going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., is going to be regathered. And in 70 A.D., not all the nations of the earth come against Jerusalem, but only Rome and Titus and destroy it, as was prophesied by Jesus and by the Old Testament. More prophecy. But, In this prophecy in Zechariah, verse 9 says, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered. You read through the first 10 verses, it's all the nations, it's what we call the battle of Armageddon. It's not really a battle, it's a gathering place for judgment because the Lord returns. But as they gather there, he says, and I will gather all nations of the earth, verse 9, and destroy those who come against Jerusalem. There is a final time for earth's history, according to the scriptures. There is a final time for men to be fighting wars and trying to kill each other, and God does intervene. And, you know, people say, well, isn't he just as cruel as the people? Do you know that, and and I know there's going to be different views on this, but the Lord says, I will shorten the days for the chosen's sake, and I'll shorten it because man would destroy himself. You know, I, you can give me all the sociological reasons why it's been since 1945 since a nuclear bomb was exploded on people. And it was the United States of America, right? And how have we made it all this far without somebody who's got a nuclear bomb not pressing the button? Because the deterrent factor is so great that everybody's in so control that nobody ever gets a hold of a government. You know, Korea won't, you know, they only, we only think they probably did an, an atomic, not a uh, hydrogen. They only killed kill 20 million people with that, not 100 million or whatever. You know, I mean, no, I, I'm not suggesting the wrongness of government or anything. I'm saying, you know, is man really capable of what he thinks he's capable of, controlling himself? So what have we done to prove that other than, other than, 
that we haven't blown each other up with a nuclear weapon. You know, it doesn't seem like very much below that has been stopped. And, and, and you know, sometimes you find it within a home, the chaos in a home where somebody's out of control, no rule over their own spirit. And sometimes you see it in a community, in the streets, and sometimes you see it in a nation, and sometimes you see it between nations. And it's that, that problem that man has that if you say, I'm not like that, that's your first step towards stumbling into something like that. There but for the grace of God go I. But why hasn't man destroyed himself, being fully capable? It's, I believe it's the grace of God has not allowed us to do that. And um, clearly the Bible tells us what will happen according to Scripture, and Scripture keeps getting fulfilled. So... They will mourn for him as one mourned for his only son and grieve for him. And that day is coming when Israel will be delivered, when the last judgment on Jerusalem, the last attack on Jerusalem comes, and God lifts up and stops it and does his work, and the Jewish people see their Messiah. And that's a promise from Scripture, and I believe it, because by, you know, the light that's been shining on that has been shining for, for generations upon generations and all the fulfillment that's already had. But I do understand this, that God has to let you see that in your heart. That light has to turn on in you. Because, you know, if you're blind, um, if I'm blind, and you, you know, and some people think I am, but <laughs> no, no matter how much light you turn on that person, well, we just need a bigger light. Well, if a person's blind, it doesn't matter how much bigger light you put on, they can't see. It's when the light turns on inside. And I thank God for that light because I don't deserve it, haven't earned it, but once it's on, I see it. And those of you who have seen it, you're, you're spoiled for the world. <laughs> you know, you've seen the light. You can't go back, really. You can't. Not really. And that day's coming. So, um, so, but here's the thing is that people will lie to you. It's true. People, you know, the politicians right now are trying to figure out and it's just a matter what side. It's the discussion. It's right in front of you. You know, if you watch any of the the, the, the discussion TV and stuff, okay. How much should the politicians say on either side of the issues when it comes to terrorism and problems and attacks? We don't want to scare people unnecessarily, but we want them to be vigilant. Everybody says that, and then it's like, well, how much do we say? How you know this guy's saying radical things, which may be true. Extreme things may be true. These guys are saying more, you know, way condensed. These guys are in the hurry. This guy's over here. This guy, what? And that's all the discussion about the pundits is what should people say? Like, there's, there, because the issue of just plain old truth is such a difficult thing to put your hands around. And the issue of just plain old truth is, well, whose truth? And I get all that. I get that. So whose viewpoint on it? But it's not just what your viewpoint is. It's what's the, what's the politically right thing to do, what's the best thing to do for people. You know, be vigilant, but don't be scared. Uh, let me tell you, Jesus never lied to you or couched what he said worrying about that you might figure it out. <laughs> he said it like it was. He didn't lie to you. And I, I'm not saying they're all liars. I know I hear some voices out there, but I didn't say it. So, you know, they're all, well, Jesus never lied to you about your troubles on earth, did he? Did he lie to you? Somebody might have lied to you. Somebody might have said, if you just bow your head and pray to Jesus, all your problems will go away. And you'll be God's kid, and everything, and everything you touch, you'll be like the Midas touch. Everything. Maybe somebody told you that, okay? Jesus didn't. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. In fact, 
There's going to be a time when people who kill you think they're doing God a favor. Uh, There's people who are going to hate you because of your faith, and you're going to suffer among all nations for my name's sake. And just generally, in the world you'll have tribulation, he said, but be of good courage. I've overcome the world. He didn't lie to you about trouble in this earth. Jesus didn't lie to us about why he came. He didn't come with false and various motives. He told the truth. You know, he told the truth about his purpose here. About He said to the religious leaders once, passionately with love in his heart, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He wasn't saying, I can't wait to say you burn. He was saying, I'm here for you, and you're not receiving me, and this isn't about me feeling good about myself. He was honest for the sake of the people he talked to. He didn't lie about what your hope is and what my hope is. He, he didn't tell you that your hope was in anything less than his coming. You, you know, yes, I came that you might have abundant life. Should we have abundant life on earth? Should we be, yeah, yeah. But you can have abundant life in a prison cell if you have real life. I don't, it's not a cop-out. How do people do it? I've noticed that joy is not attached to physical stuff because I've noticed that many people have everything physically together and do not have joy. You can't tell us that joy is attached to having your life be just perfectly together physically and all worked out because there's people who are miserable and their life is all worked out. You can't tell me that joy is gone if you're in trouble because... Paul the Apostle was in great trouble almost every day and says we have joy unspeakable and full of glory and we have people right now suffering persecution for the Lord. God be with each one of them. And many experiencing and writing joy, read Richard Warmbrandt's writings. Read the way God revealed himself to the man in, in, in 11 years. He never saw colored clothing. He never saw a woman or a child. He hardly saw people except to get beaten up. He only saw gray. They kept it that way. Everything, so you'd see no light, no color, just the dimmest of light, and you wouldn't see anything that reminded you of the joyful things of life. And he spent 11 years there, and he could hardly walk when he came out. He couldn't stand up. I sit to preach because I'm lazy. He sat to preach because his feet couldn't take it. No, I sit to preach because I'll yell at you if I stand. <laughs> but um, he, and the joy in this man in the midst, when they took communion, they were able to take communion with nothing and enjoy the, the wonder of nothingness since God made everything out of nothing that they could have communion together. Tapping on walls to communicate. I start going on on these stories. Read the books in here about the joy of these people. How do people do what people have done? Not angrily and vehemently, but with joy. You know, what's that source going to be? Listen, in our lives, people have broken promises to us. And when a promise is broken, it, a heart's deferred. You know, almost every movie that has kids and parents in it now, I'm being very general here by saying almost every movie, but you, you almost can't find a movie where there isn't a dad who, or mom and somebody's estranged, or if they're not estranged or estranged from the family, they've made promises to the kids and they haven't kept them. Have you ever seen a movie like that? And then in the end, they finally get to keep the promise, but it's only, after all, disaster for years, right? 
And then it, it kind of like it fixes everything. And it does help when a promise that, you know, when a, a person goes to great lengths to, to fix. It goes, it's wonderful when somebody forgives, too. But, you know, there's so much wounding and hurting through broken promises. And I bet everybody in this room has had promises broken that were made to you. I don't know, but I'm assuming, just being human. And I bet everybody in this room has broken promises. We've broken. We've, our promises to us have been broken, and promises that we've made have been broken. And you know, it robs you of hope when promises are broken. Jesus has never broken his promise to you. Some of it has not yet been fulfilled in a way that you can see it, and that's not a cop-out. He declared that. You're going to have to wait through patience and faith. We inherit the promises. The Lord, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect. I could give you a lot of scriptures that would not be to say it, and it'll happen right now. I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures that say we wait, and we wait patiently, and we find the Lord in the midst of it. And don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed because you have to wait. It's not, it's not automatically because you're doing something wrong. Sometimes you're just waiting for God, waiting with God, and waiting on God. And the hope that we have, it tells us, and I'm going to read to you in Hebrews chapter 6, and then we have communion available for us, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. It says, the hope in Jesus who never lied to us, we have it as an anchor to our soul. In Hebrews six nineteen. both sure and steadfast, which enters into the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner, the first one who said it is finished and completed the work, has entered into us, even Jesus. I'm taking part of the verse because some of the rest of it, then I'd feel obligated to explain a bunch of Old Testament history, and you don't want me to do that right now. But I want to tell you is that there's a hope that we have that's an anchor to our soul. Do you need an anchor to your soul? You know, an anchor to your emotions, an anchor to your decisions, an anchor to your, your thoughts, an anchor to your personality, an anchor to your character, an anchor to your desires. Do you need an anchor to keep you from just blowing downstream like we talked last week? It's the hope that you have in Jesus. It can't be something less than that because something less than that's not eternal and is not sustainable. It can't be something more than that because something more to get that does not exist.